Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, Have you ever wondered if Jesus appeared in the Old Testament in more than just the predictive prophecies about him? Does the Old Testament present us with a Unitarian picture of God until the New Testament comes around to give us more revelation uh, and tell us that God is actually a trinity after all? Uh, Well, my two guests today, Douglas Van Dorn and Matt Foreman, they wrote a book called The Angel of the Lord, and they answer in that book that Jesus does appear in the Old Testament and not just in prophecies uh, about him, predictive prophecies. He shows up in uh, in a person that you may have seen and you didn't realize him. Uh, you didn't recognize him. Um, there are traces of the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament and people prior to the rise of Christianity, actually took notice of this. Um, Welcome, gentlemen. It's good to have you on the show today. Thanks for having us on there, Evan. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, First, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourselves. Um, Either of you can can go first. Uh, Well, uh, I'm a pastor. This is Doug. I'm a pastor in Colorado in a Reformed Baptist church. We started the church in 2002, so I've been here ever since. And uh, met Matt probably right about the same time, I suppose, huh, Matt? 2003, maybe? Probably, around then. In uh, a Baptist assembly that we were both part of and and, uh, became friends and Started talking about the angel Lord, I suppose, about eight years ago or something like that. And then began to write this book maybe five five years ago. Yeah, five or six. Yeah. Yeah, my name is Matt. I'm pastor a church in suburban Philadelphia, a town called Media, Pennsylvania, Faith Reformed Baptist Church. And I've been pastor there since 2002 as well. And so uh, Doug's time and my time kind of cross a lot of paths. We've served on a number of denominational councils together, and then uh, we're both kind of preaching in the Old Testament back in 2013. I was preaching in Exodus. He was preaching in Genesis, I believe, at the time, and we started kind of talking long distance, comparing notes, uh, sending things we were reading together. Doug sent me a number of articles. We started realizing how prominent a figure the angel of the Lord is in the Old Testament and realizing there hadn't been very much written on that subject in a very long time in a, in a focused way. And so I uh, felt like a, a book needed to be written. And so what it's been out now about a, about a year. Close to a year. Yep. Coming in yeah. this month, a couple of weeks, I think. Wow. Yeah. I enjoyed the book. It's been uh it's been sitting in my Kindle for a while. I got, I just got around to it because I'm doing some studying up on Christology and the doctrine of the Trinity. Cause, uh, on my YouTube channel, cerebral faith video, um, for those listening to the podcast, you can find it 
pretty easily. Just type in cerebral faith and it'll be like the first, uh, the first one that sh shows up, it's got a, it's got a brain with a, a cross in it. Um, you can't miss it. But uh, I'm about to wrap up a series I'm doing on the primeval history, and I'm going to talk about the biblical basis for the deity of Christ, the logical coherence of the deity of Christ, the biblical basis for the Trinity, and then the logical coherence of the Trinity. So I thought, you know, this would be a good time to dig out that that book that I've been you know, waiting to, to get around to and, and start reading it because that has to do with Trinity, Jesus, uh, his his Godhead, because uh, I've, I've been reading a whole bunch of books in prep for that. And I, I thought it was a, a very, very well written book, very good book. It um, it really covered um, a lot of ground. So. Um, what prompted you and Matt to write this book? You say you say that um, uh, a couple of times, and you mentioned this in the book that, uh, uh, for one thing, and you and you just said here on the podcast that there really hasn't been anything like this written in like a hundred years. Um, and you also say that there are other books that deal with Christ in the Old Testament, but they they just don't go far enough, in your opinion. Can you uh, ex explain a little for our audience what you mean by that? Um, so when I, when I think about myself and I suppose a lot of people I know that have thought about Christ in the old Testament, like most people think he's there in prophecy, which is rightly so. Um, but I think for many people, it probably stops there that he just, he's predicted to come in the new Testament era. Uh, a few people will see him in what's called typology where, um, you've got some kind of a figure, a person, a place, a thing that represents something that's coming in the future. And so in that case, Christ would be typed in like the animal sacrifices or something like that. Um, but to actually see him present in the Old Testament, that's much rarer. And uh, for whatever reason, when people that I've talked to um, and don't know anything about this subject, when you ask them what they think about God, you know, who... Who's in the Old Testament? Who's the God of the Old Testament? You know, they'll either just say God, uh, as in the being, the one essence, or they maybe they'll say the Father. Very, I found that very few will say the Son. And uh, so this has kind of been troubling to me for a long time. You know, uh, I've known many, many Christians that have argued with me that um, the God of the New Testament, Jesus, is totally different than the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. Um, and they talk about things like the wars and and the harsh laws that that uh, the God of the Old Testament has, but Jesus is this kind, loving um, person that comes. And, and so they separate the two Testaments in just a way that's not healthy, not good. And so those were some of the driving factors behind why I wanted to write the book. To help people see the connection between Genesis to Revelation, not make this sharp divide, help them to understand that the same God that's on the um, giving the Sermon on the Mount is the same God that's coming to Moses uh, on Mount Sinai. Because to do that, you know, you start creating a, a coherent view of who this God is in your own mind, which is incredibly important for any Christian. And so I think that you know, this was this was a major 
reason why I wanted to write the book. I don't know about you, Matt. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree in terms of helping people understand the unity of the, of the Bible, the unity of God's revelation, uh, the consistency from old Testament to new Testament, because most people don't know their old and old Testaments well enough to understand how they relate together. The, the other issue, you know, is historical, you know, you, you mentioned, I mean, there, there are books that will mention the angel of the Lord as possible pre-incarnate, you know, manifestations of the sun in the Old Testament. And, you know, but they they frame it in this language of shadow, possible manifestation, and, and very few want to come out and say, no, this, this is absolutely clearly the sun. And the problem is, is that's a change from Christian history. Uh, that's really something that's been common in the last 200 years. Whereas in the 17, 1800 years before that, it was the exact opposite. And when people spoke about the Old Testament from the early church fathers all the way up to the time of the Reformation, they, they were very um, clear and certain about Christ being actually present in the Old Testament, not just predicted, but he's the one actually most often working, interacting, appearing with the patriarchs, uh, appearing in other places in the Old Testament. And so, you know, you know, there's been kind of a, you know, anti-supernatural bias that has been, has kind of infiltrated the church from the Enlightenment, uh, as well as, you know, just kind of a, a, a will, desire to kind of avoid any possible eisegesis. Um, and because of that, I, I, we think there's been something lost in how we understand the Old Testament. Um, and then, you know, the, the more you get into it, the more you realize this has been, you know, uh, there's a history of interpretation here that the angel of the Lord is a much more important figure and appears more often than people realize. And there's a clear distinction between this angel, this divine angel sent from Yahweh, and yet at other times this same angel is is uh, is connected vitally to Yahweh. And, uh, you know, in terms of our New Testament theology as Christians, that, you know, the only, the only explanation, and we shouldn't shy away from it, is the idea that this is absolutely the Son. Yeah. And uh, you, I want you to talk about Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 to 33, uh, and its reference to the angel of the Lord and its parallel with Judges 2, uh, it, and how it shows that there is an angel who is God, and yet it is in some way distinct from God. The, the, the angel is God, and yet the angel is distinct from God. You talk, you talk about this in the introduction, uh, and I thought it was a very... I thought it was a very powerful way to start off the book. Like you start off with the, the two strongest texts that talk about the, the deity of the angel and his distinctness from, uh, from Yahweh. All right. Why don't I set it up? I'll read it. I'll read the Exodus and then I'll read the judges, make a comment or two. And then Matt can talk about some of the, the distinctive uh, language where he's, he is, but he isn't the Lord. And also I think, Matt, you do a good job with the whole face thing there, which is important. We can probably talk about that later. But So Exodus 23, 20 uh, says, Behold, 
I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversary. Series. So just a couple of comments here. I notice that the angel of the Lord, um, there to obey him. And then it says that if they rebel, he will not pardon their sin. So I want you to think about the New Testament when Jesus comes along, heals a man, and says his sins are forgiven. Well, first he says the sins are forgiven, and the, and the Pharisees get all upset about this. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And just to prove that he is God, he heals the person. That's coming right into this passage right here. Because, yeah, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's, that's a great question. But they should have known their Old Testament. They should have known that there is somebody who can forgive sin, uh, who's distinct from God, but who's also God. So it's really important that people understand um, that particular part of this section. So this is the angel that goes before Israel in the Exodus. Uh, he's in the cloud. He's in the uh, pillar of fire. And then he ends up going into the promised land to uh, prepare a way to fight uh, before Israel, like at Jericho uh, and things like that. So after Joshua comes along and go through that whole book and the angel has been fighting for them. You come to the book of Judges and this is the second chapter starting in the first verse. It says, now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim. And he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept and they called the name of the place Bakim and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So the first immediate connection that you can see to Exodus 20 is that he says, you have not obeyed my voice. So this is the same angel that was talked about back in Exodus 20 and who they were told, obey his voice or he won't forgive your sins. Here he says, you have not obeyed my voice. And so he's now promising them that he will not drive out the inhabitants of the land. They're going to be thorns and snares. So that links the two together. A couple of other things that people need to see here is that this angel says, I brought you up from Egypt. But that's what's attributed to Yahweh, the Lord, uh, in, in other places. But here he says, the angel brought you up out of Egypt. And not only that, says that I it was the land that I swore to give to your fathers. What's that talking about? Well, he goes on to say, I will never, I said to them, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. So this is the person who, if you go back into Genesis, uh, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is covenanting with the patriarchs. This angel is. The problem that people don't see there is that he's often not called the angel there. He's just called the Lord. Sometimes he's called the angel, but often he's not at all. 
And so Judges 2 here is giving you a link straight back to the patriarchs, to the God who's making the covenants with the patriarchs, which is just tremendously important because this is saying that this angel is Yahweh. So, Matt, I know you have other things uh, to say about the passage that I didn't bring up there. Yeah, well, for if for people who are not familiar with this idea at all, or this is a brand new idea, you, we do have to clarify, every, not every time you see an angel in the Old Testament are we saying it's the divine angel, it's the divine son. But this passage, Exodus 23, and numerous other passages in the Old Testament are really important passages that show an angel being spoken of in a very distinct way from other angels. He's called an angel. An angel just means messenger. But this angel is spoken of in very different ways than other angels and is spoken of in ways that are equal to Yahweh himself. Um, and this, the Exodus 23 passage is, is just one of these key passages, but it's a really crucial one because it, it's one of the passages that make this distinction and sameness clear. And even the context of Exodus 23 is really important because it's it's right at the end of the Sinai covenant. It's kind of like the last promise of the Sinai covenant that 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 God gives them. This is before, obviously, the the sin with the golden calf and other things. But as they as they originally are given the Sinai covenant, they're given this promise of an angel to guard them. Pay careful attention to him. Obey his voice. Do not rebel against him. He will not pardon your transgression. And then it says, for my name is in him. Um, and so right there, you're starting to get some of the language that we point out in the book where the where the, the divine angel is called by different titles. He's called the voice of the Lord. He's called the name of the Lord. He's called an angel. Um, when, you, when you think about Exodus and you go back to the revelation of God's name in Exodus 3, you know, the burning bush was the angel of the Lord appearing to them in the burning bush. And then the Lord speaks to them from the burning bush. So there's already a blurring of distinction between the angel and Yahweh. And then in that passage is where the, the divine name is revealed. Well, here's Yahweh speaking in Exodus 23 saying, my name, my divine name is in this, this being. And, and the rest of the passage kind of continues to blur that distinction, you know, Verse 22 of Exodus 23, if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, meaning obeying the angel's voice is doing what Yahweh says. And then later in the passage, it's still Yahweh speaking. Verse 25, you shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. Um and, and so it's like the, the language itself is going back and forth between this angel who's spoken of being sent from Yahweh, who is also said to be Yahweh. And then you, you see that parallel passage in, in Judges 2 that, that Doug mentioned, where all of the language in Judges 2 is an echo of this language in Exodus 23, where the angel there says, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who made a covenant with your fathers. You've not obeyed my voice, and therefore I'm going to withdraw the, the full promise of my, of, you know, of my blessing and my protection from you. Um, 
And so you begin to start to see there's this storyline of this angel sent who is distinct and yet who is spoken of and who speaks as Yahweh himself. And then one of the things that we, we then take you to in the introduction is at the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. And I've been, I, don't, I don't know if you wanted to go here, but we, we see Malachi 3 as a similar kind of parallel to Exodus 23 and Judges 2, where Malachi 3, the New Testament clearly sees as a prophecy of Christ, prophecy of John the Baptist. You know, Malachi 3 promises... Um, uh, two angels uh, coming. Yeah, two angels. He says, I will send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, or literally it's before my face. One of the things we talk about in the book is how sometimes in the Old Testament, the face of the Lord is a title for the angel of the Lord. And Isaiah 63, the divine angel is called the angel of the face, the angel of the presence. Um, so the New Testament identifies the first messenger in Malachi 3 as John the Baptist. It says, I will send my messenger. He will prepare the way before my face. Then the Adonai whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple even the angel of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, but who could endure the day of his coming? Uh, well, what's the angel of the covenant? Well, the angel of the covenant was the covenant angel promised at the Mount Sinai covenant. So the, the New Testament identifies John the Baptist as the one who prepares the way before the Adonai who comes to his temple, who's also called the angel of the covenant. And so clearly, this is one of those connections where the where we can trace this storyline and say what's being promised in Malachi 3 is the restoration of the angel's presence fully with the people who will again be their their guardian savior uh, that that promise was was withdrawn because of their sin but there's a day coming when that angel is going to come in a new way and bring about a new redemption uh, completely greater than was before. Yeah, that's that's some fascinating stuff. And um, one area that I, I'd like for you two to talk about, uh, where this angel, the angel of the Lord, shows up and he talks as though he's Yahweh, uh, is the is in Genesis twenty-two when Abraham sacrifices Isaac, and what this when Abraham sacrifices Isaac. Uh, an angel shows up and he says some things that you just wouldn't expect if he were just an ordinary angel. Uh, you want us to read the passage? Yeah. That would be helpful. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's get it. Let's let's get into that a little bit. All right. So Genesis 22, and I'll just I guess I'll read it and then comment a little as I go. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. And now that's an interesting phrase there because uh, Hebrews takes only son and calls it the only begotten son, which makes it a type, makes Isaac a type of Jesus because Jesus is the only begotten. But keep going here. Your only son whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, 
which is also interesting given it's a sacrifice coming, a death. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took it in his hand, uh, the fire and the knife, and they went both of them on together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they both, they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and laid it, uh, the wood in the altar and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And here all of a sudden the angel of the Lord makes his appearance. Sorry about that. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy and do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So notice that the angel's calling to him. And you, I know you, that you fear God because you haven't withheld your son from me. Well, what does that mean? He's, he's about ready to offer a sacrifice to God, which means that the sacrifice is going to go to God. But the angel says, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mountain, the Lord will provide. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have, I have sworn. So we see the swearing again that we saw back in Judges. So this is a lot like making a covenant. I have sworn, declares the Lord. Now look at that. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham a second time and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring and the as the stars of the heaven as the sand on the seashore and your offspring will possess the gate of your enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice and there's the language of obeying the voice again uh, that we saw both in judges 2 and in exodus um, 23 so you've got some of this strange language going on again here of of is it yahweh talking is the angel of the lord talking what's going on there and and matt can clear that up again for us <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is one of those passages. Another one of those passages that you could, we could spend an entire podcast talking about this, this chapter because there's so much. In fact, detail. we have. <laughs> yeah, we've done that before. Um, but you know, I mean, the key point in in talking about the angel is, you know, the the passage begins and the angel's not not mentioned. You know, it doesn't seem to be in the picture until. You come down to verse 11, and right at the last second, the angel of God calls from heaven, angel of the Lord calls from heaven, and stops Abraham. And, and suddenly you realize, oh, it was the angel the first time. You know, the, the, that, that seems to be what's implied. It, you know, so that every time you, 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 know, you see God or the Lord, you have to ask, could this possibly be the sent 
one manifested, you know, being being manifested. And often it is. Um, you know, there there's there's so many details here. Like the I mentioned earlier, the voice. You go back to Genesis three, you know, after the fall when they when they hear Adam and Eve hear the the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. Well, that that word could be translated the voice. It's the same Hebrew word. The voice of the Lord was the one walking with them in the garden. Well, here's this this angel, and the angel says, "I'm the one who sent you." to sacrifice your son in a way you were sacrificing your son to me. Well, once you start putting together all of this evidence from the old Testament, that this divine angel was sent by Yahweh and yet was Yahweh. And we realize as new Testament Christians, the person that's being manifested is the person of the son who we know as Jesus. Then suddenly that changes how we read this chapter. And, and you, you realize as a New Testament Christian, it's Jesus telling Abraham, don't lay your hand on your only son whom you love. Uh, don't sacrifice him. I, I, I see that you've not withheld your son, but it's not going to be your son who's going to be the sacrifice. You know, I'm going to provide the, the lamb for the sacrifice, not just in, you know, temporarily in this ram caught in the thicket. But finally and ultimately, God did not spare his own son whom he loves. Jesus is saying in the midst of this, uh, you know, has to know the divine plan of God is this going to be provided for by by me. And so that it changes how you read the chapter. Suddenly, you know, this is a lot more of a, uh, uh, there's a pregnant chapter that, that teaches us about the goodness and the love and the purpose of Jesus. Yeah, I remember when I realized the, the typology of, uh, of, of the passage for the first time when I was reading the Bible several years ago. It wasn't, I, I didn't have a preacher or a commentator tell, tell me this. I, just, I was just reading the passage and I just noticed that I, just, I, made, the, I made the connections on my own, you know, you've got a father sacrificing his son and um, you know, all the similarities with the cross. And then later when I realized that that was the same location that Jesus would be crucified thousands of years later, it sent chills down my spine. It was, yeah, um, yeah I'll never forget it. The, the, the land of Moriah where he was told to take him is only mentioned one other time in the old Testament as the place where the temple is eventually built. So Moriah eventually is where Jerusalem is and is eventually where the temple is. And so then you get the, these connections of, you know, all pointing together to not just typologically, but there, there's a being who's overseeing all this interacting in a mediated way with Abraham, with the patriarchs, who is the son who's going to one day come in the flesh to fulfill all of these things himself. So you get to the end of Genesis 22, where God, you know, the angel makes this promise, your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Mm -hmm. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that, you know, Paul, the apostle Paul makes the point in Galatians 3 that the offspring there is singular, you know, and it's even 
in that way in the Hebrew, that your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's certainly a messianic prophecy being made here that some descendant of Abraham is going to bring blessing to the whole earth. And it's the angel of the Lord promising this who was himself the person who was going to fulfill that promise in himself. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, now, who is the commander of the Lord of hosts referred to in the book of Joshua? Is, uh, is that the angel of the Lord who is God manifest? If so, why do you think that? All right, so to answer this one, we need to go to Exodus chapter 3 first. And Matt, you mentioned this earlier, it's uh, kind of said it, but I've, I've noticed that when I talk to people about Exodus 3, and this is the story of the burning bush, that um, you say that, well, it was the angel of the Lord that, that appeared to Moses. And people are like, what are you talking about? Never, I've never heard that. So verse 2 literally says, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. So for whatever reason, uh, it's just very easy to miss the little tiny detail that it was the angel. So angel appears to him. He looks, behold, the bush is burning, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why is the bush not burned? And the Lord, so notice that now we've changed. We've gone from the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now the Lord saw, that's the word Yahweh, that he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush. All these different names, right? Angel of the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim. It's kind of crazy. So he calls him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. So this is the angel speaking. Tells him to take his sandals off, place his stand is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses hid his face. He's afraid to look at God. Um, and it just keeps on going. And that's where you end up getting the, the name I am who I am. But since we're comparing this to Joshua, that's the important part that we needed to see. Um, so now you go to Joshua 5. This is right before the Battle of Jericho. Joshua is getting ready to go fight it. And this is the end of chapter 5 in Joshua. Joshua was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And we actually see the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword in his hand more than one time in the Old Testament. With Balaam and then in the days of David, we see it again. Um, Joshua went to him and said, uh, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, I'm not for anybody. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Or, the, or you could say the prince of of the hosts of heaven, something like that, of the, of the Lord. Now I have come, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him. So this is the this is the person who's going to go uh, before Joshua and fight these battles, because he's doing this for himself. But he's using Joshua and his people because he loves him. He's covenanted with him. So Joshua worships, falls on his face and worships him. And said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And then it says, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So that last phrase there, that's the key to linking it back to Exodus 3. It's only two times you find this in the Old Testament. And it's the very same kind of an idea 
and it's very, you know, he's got different titles. So in one case, the angel is the messenger. Here he's the commander. So those words are conveying different ideas, right? Uh, one tells you uh, a bunch of words. This one tells you that he's a warrior. But in either case, it's the same person because when you put the two passages together, he's saying the same exact thing. He's, he's receiving worship in both instances. Uh, you don't worship uh, a man if you're a biblical uh, godly person who believes in Yahweh. You only worship God. And yet here we have uh, this person being worshipped, saying the very same things. Um, and by the way, it's to Joshua, who's not only Moses' successor, who, who would have heard of this person before, uh, because Moses used to talk with him and Joshua would stand outside the tent. But Joshua, his very name means Jesus, if you were to translate it into the Greek. So all kinds of, uh, you know, like you said earlier, Matt, pregnant things are happening with this passage too. Uh, and that's how that's how the Battle of Jericho is set up. Have we lost Matt? Oh, okay. No, no I'm still I'm I still thought, here. I was going to say I never make you. I've never I've never brought you to silence before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just I was I thought Matt that maybe you wanted to jump in and say something, so I I was pausing. But uh, yeah, you know, um, and it that whole thing about uh, angels, there there's like there's a couple of times I think in the Bible. Uh, one is in Revelation where people try to worship an angel. But they actually say, no, don't do that. I'm just I'm just a servant of God like you are. A, a, a righteous a righteous angel does not accept worship, you know, because he's a he's a, a, a servant being. He's a ministering spirit. But this angel at the end of Joshua five accepts the worship, in fact, demands it. Yeah. And so there's mm -hmm. only two conclusions. He's either evil, fallen like Lucifer, or he's God. That's your only two options that you have. Right, biblically, and, and yet the 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 point of Joshua is this is, as they've entered the promised land, this is the one that they, you know, he's not, he, he's not on their side. You know, the question is, are they on his side? Is the is the question the the angel asks, and so you you, know, you start asking, well, what what is this commander of the army of the Lord? Um, hold on a second, I'm getting this. I was getting a weird. Well, first Doug's phone went off, and you, you, then your phone yeah. went off. You got my, my Echo Dot has a tendency to go off when I'm doing these <laughs> things. <laughs> so what, one of the things you know, you, you get this phrase. You know, Doug pointed out the commander. The word, the Hebrew word, is sar. It can also be translated prince. You know, the the commander of the host, the prince of the host. And one of the things we we trace in the book is this idea of a a, 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 a commander of the Lord's armies, and in in the ancient world, um, you know, sometimes the the general, the commander of the Lord's armies, was called the hand of the king. Uh, the king, the king's hand, the king's right hand, was the ruler of his armies or the leader of his armies. And throughout the Old Testament, you sometimes have this title, the hand of the Lord or the arm of the Lord, um, appearing as uh, a, almost, a, again, a, sep a separate being, um, 
a being who is sent to accomplish God's will. You know, it, you know, in, in the book of Isaiah, several times it'll talk about God sent forth his holy arm to accomplish salvation for him. Um, and then and then in the book of Daniel, in some of the prophecies of Daniel, you have a a, a prophecy about you know w- what we interpret it as is the the rise of Satan against the forces of God. And, and Daniel will talk about him rising against the prince of the host, trying to become as great as the prince of the host. And yet eventually he will be defeated. So there's there's this all this language of, well, where, who in the world is this prince of the host? Well, if, if you were a good Old Testament scholar, you realized the prince of the host was the, the one sent from God who was God. Um, and this is where you start to get you start to realize that there is this language in the Old Testament of God having a son. Uh, and there, and this was known, this is not just a Christian interpretation of these things. Uh, we, we trace in the book that there was substantial Jewish discussion, pre-Christian Jewish discussion about all of these same ideas. Uh, and, and there was a substantial kind of minority Jewish tradition prior to Christianity, that believed there were two Yahwehs in the Old Testament. There was a heavenly Yahweh, transcendent Yahweh, and there was a Yahweh sent to the earth, manifested on the earth. And, and these are all the same kind of texts that that led to those interpretations. And uh, historically, that Jewish interpretation that denied um, denied that kind of theology, that 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 view became heresy among the Jews in the second century uh, after Christ. Meaning, what, you know, one of the reasons we think so many Jews became Christians is they already had this tradition of a second Yahweh, uh, sometimes called the Word of God from the Old Testament. Um, so, you know, like when John says Jesus was the Word, uh, the Word of God appeared all the time in the Old Testament as this sent angel. Um, well, you know, the, the, eventually the Jewish rabbis realized this is really bad news for what we want to, you know, our people to be believing. So we're going to make this heresy and, you know, kind of squash it. As, as yeah, as they, it makes for too good of an apologetic for, for the Trinity. Yeah, that's uh, right. Christianity. Yeah. Right. But you go back to Jews prior to Christ, even Philo of Alexandria is a real, you know, well-known philosophical Jew. And Philo, you know, we're not saying that they fully understood Trinitarian theology, but they saw and made all these connections. And Philo is talking about a second God and a second Yahweh and a Logos who reveals God. And they're they're dealing with all of these texts that, you know, once you get into the nitty gritty of the Hebrew, you have to deal with it in some way. Yeah, I was, yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that, about... The, uh, the Jewish recognition of this, uh, what, what's been called the, the two powers in heaven. Um, you mentioned a couple of names like Philo, but uh, what were some of the other uh, Jews um, who, who realized that we've got, we've got two persons who are the same God here in, in the Old Testament? Well, Philo's a big one. Um put me on the spot got to go to the part of the book that talks about it gives uh some of these some of these ideas there there were all kinds of intertestamental jewish writings 
that were uh, playing around with this idea um, of kind of deification or something like that, that kind of comes close to that. And then you've got just some, you've got just some various uh, rabbinical writings that, you know, would say like Rabbi Akaba or whatever. I don't remember if it's Akaba or not, but uh, just different different uh, Jews that are that are uh, different rabbis that are talking about two powers in heaven, and then another rabbi will come along and say, "But uh, we don't believe that." So this was actually detailed in uh, I think it was the his dissertation, a guy named Alan Segal. Uh, back in 1977, he was a Jewish scholar, never became a Christian. And um, he came to this conclusion that, yeah, there was this undercurrent in Judaism um, that saw these two powers in heaven. And the interesting thing to me about it is that it became a heresy sometime, he says, in probably the early second century AD. And um, I've actually I have a Jewish friend that I've talked to about this as well, and he kind of kind of confirms this as a Jew, not even a Christian, that that um, this happened because of Christianity. So you have this guy that the New Testament's speaking about named Jesus that's being called all these titles that were either associated with uh, the second power um, or were some kind of a hypostasis. Um, that were added by um, Targums, which are Jewish kind of paraphrases in Aramaic or retranslations of the Old Testament uh, for non-Hebrew speaking Jews that would add words like uh, the word memra, which is the equivalent of our English word word or the Greek word logos. They would add these words to the text to kind of be a buffer between God and and man because it's, some of them were very uncomfortable with, with this divine sim, sim, simple God uh, divine simplicity speaking and somehow uh, manifesting on the earth. So um, he says that uh, because the New Testament was using all this language and all of these Jews were converting very, very quickly, very easily uh, to believing that Jesus is God, like you have to ask yourself a question. If you're a Unitarian and Jew Judaism's always been that way, which is one God, one person, right? There's, there's no, there's no triune. There's no there's, there's only one, okay? How in the world can you convince hundreds of thousands of Jews that Jesus Christ is God and should be worshiped? Unless there's something in their theology already there, latent, that uh, was under the surface that a lot of them were already believing. So the rabbis saw this in the second century and they decided that they were losing too many people. Also, they've lost their temple, they've lost their religion. And so they had to kind of put the clamps down on this to, to keep everybody from becoming a Christian. It was a very, very bad thing. Seagal uh, kind of looked at it as it wasn't a bad thing. But it's interesting that he as an unbeliever came to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, they... they yeah, I, um, yeah I, I was introduced to uh, Alan Seagal's book through Michael Heiser's work. Uh, that's... Uh, he he talked. He mentioned it in um, I think he mentioned it in the Unseen Realm and also in a lecture he did on the two powers. That's how I learned about it. It's very very fascinating stuff. Uh, Matt, you were going to say something. Oh, and by the way, Doug, I didn't mean to didn't mean to put you on the spot, but Matt was talking <laughs> about Philo, and I was like, you know what? This is a nice way. I wasn't going to talk about this until later, but it's a nice it's a nice segue into the whole um, 
Jewish conversation. Yeah, we do detail that uh, in the book. So I'm old, so I, my, you know, my memory is going. <laughs> yeah, we, we we mentioned Philo because he's a big one whose whose works are readily available, you know, and and people have done a lot of study of them. You know, the the other Jewish sources are often they're sometimes they're they're unnamed or it'll just say like Rabbi A, you know, versus Rabbi M. You you get these kind of things in some of the midrash writings of the Jews, and they're arguing back and forth about certain texts or. You know, D Doug mentioned the Targums. You know, like one example I love to give people because it helps people understand how important this is. Yeah, I've, we've already mentioned Genesis three, the you know during the fall of, of Adam and Eve into sin, and says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, the Jewish Targum will say they heard the sound of the word of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day, meaning something in the Jews wanted to make clear. You know, hey, we we believe in a transcendent God. We, we got to put in some word here to make sure that people understand this was a mediated revelation. So they heard the sound of the word of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Well, well, what exactly is that? What is the word? You know, what is this this one who was sent? Um, so you know, we we've mentioned this. This became, you know extreme unorthodox thinking among the Jews after Christianity. And yet even much later, uh, some of the Jews were, were still yeah. dealing uh, with some of these things. I, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the mid middle ages um, Jewish scholar. Who's, who's so if anybody's so interested in this, there's two uh, Christians that dealt with this in uh, kind of the early 1700s, late 1600s. And I, I put uh, some of their work on this into two modern type retypes of books and a bunch of footnotes to help people understand it. A guy named Peter Alex and another guy named Gerard de Gaulle's and uh, both very solid um, Orthodox Protestant Christians who spent a lot of time looking into uh, the very things Matt's talking about uh, all the way up into the medieval uh, Jewish world. I mean, they're, these guys are translating Spanish Jews and you know all uh, French Jews, all kind of all kinds of people that are still dealing with with it, you know, all those centuries after you know, heresy. P Pierre Alex is a great example. So Pierre Alex was late late 1600s, wrote a book uh, against Unitarianism. So Unitarianism was growing in the late 17th century, and Peter Pierre Alex wrote a book called. The Judgment of the Ancient Jewish Church Against the Unitarians. And the whole point of the book was to say ancient Jewish religion was not Unitarian. Um, ancient Jewish tradition believed in a Godhead. And he's quoting from, you know, all kinds of ancient Jewish writings to prove this point. And a lot of it has to go, you know, goes back to various understandings of the angel of the Lord. So that's why... When we found that book, we became really interested in, in some of the things he was saying there. Yeah, let, let me plug those two for you, for your audience if anybody's interested in it. Um, just go to Amazon and look up a guy named Peter Alex, A-L-L-I-X. And then uh, I've called the book A Dissertation Concerning the Angel, 
uh, which was just an appendix he had at the end of a book, but I've added a bunch of other things that were part of that book that were relevant to the subject. Okay. Yeah. Uh, send me the, yeah, send me the links to yeah. those and I'll put them in the show notes. I'll do that. The other guy's named Gerard de Gaulle's and it's called the worship of the Lord Jesus in the old Testament. So those are both on Amazon. People can get them They're I highly recommend them because what you're seeing with their work is stuff that uh, Alan Seagal's dealing with in 1977 that everybody thinks is breakthrough. <laughs> These guys were 200 plus years ahead of him talking about the very same things. Yeah. Yes. Just, uh, just send me the links to those. I'll put them, I'll put them in the show notes along with the link to your book and uh, the, our audience can go check that out. So as I, I, as I was reading through your book, I was uh, surprised that you said that the angel of the Lord showed up in the book of Job. Where, um, I was thinking, what? Where is he? Where, where is the angel talked about in Job? Um, would you like to uh, get into a little bit of that? We can do that. So one of the things you got to realize is there's a there's a whole supernatural um, kind of emphasis that runs throughout the whole book of Job. You, you know, obviously the first chapter, you've got, you know, the Satan coming before the sons of God, the sons of God being called before the throne of Yahweh. You get this divine counsel language of, of some type of heavenly counsel of divine beings, and the Satan comes there. So the whole book starts with this you know, supernatural heavenly perspective on what's about to happen to Job. And then running through the entire book of Job, there's these, these places where Job and his friends talk about angels, talk about heavenly mediators. And one of Job's complaints in the book that he comes back to again and again in the book is that, that he doesn't have anyone to mediate for him between him and God. Um, and, you know, and even, even were they to find an angel, you know, to mediate, you know, the, the angels were fallen beings, you know. So th there's this, this theme that, that runs all the way through. And then you get to uh, Elihu in Exodus or in Job 33. Um, and Elihu is the fourth friend. He's the one friend who doesn't get rebuked by God later. You know, so the first three friends all turn out to be false friends. But the way I interpret the book is Elihu is the one who actually speaks truth and then makes the way for Yahweh himself actually speaking to, to Job. And um, in the first part of Elihu's speech to Job, um, uh, he, he brings up, the, again, this idea of a an, of an mediator. And this is Job 33, uh, verse 23. And it says, if there be for a man, if there be for a man an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Then let his, his flesh become fresh with youth. Let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then... That man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. And 
later as he's redeemed from going down to the pit. So what's happening there is that that Elihu's talking about the fact that a man is condemned before God. He he needs he needs a mediator. He needs a ransom, and he suggests maybe there might be one found. He calls an angel, a mediator. Now the phrase one of the one of a thousand is like this is an angel above all others. Because earlier in the book, it says even God charges his angels with error. But if you could find the perfect angel, mediator, intercessor, this one might step in and say, deliver that man from going down to the pit for I have found a ransom. And then because of that angel's mediation, it's like the man is restored to spiritual health. He He's revived. He prays to God and his his uh, his. His, his righteousness is restored. Um, and w- what we suggest in the book what is that Elihu, Job, is talking about the fact that we, we need some type of mediation. And we point out, um, you know, like in the, the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, uh, the angel of, you know, Joshua the high priest appears before the angel of the Lord dressed in filthy garments, and the Satan is there to accuse him. So here's a a similar kind of picture to what is going on in the whole book of Job. And yet in Zechariah 3, this angel of the Lord intercedes and says, you know, rebukes Satan and takes, you know, says, take the filthy rags off Joshua the high priest and clothes him with, with a new robe. And, and the angel intercedes. And one of the things we're, we're suggesting is that this, this was this promise that was looked forward to in the Old Testament, that, that a divine mediator would come and intervene uh, for human beings in a way that would bring about uh, this greater salvation. And that that's kind of what Job is longing for in the whole book of Job. Awesome, awesome stuff. So thank you guys for coming on. Thank you, Douglas Van Dorn and Matt Foreman for being my guests today. It's good to be on your show, Evan. Nice to meet you. Thanks for getting in contact with us on Facebook. Glad glad you were able to find us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before we go, as with ev- uh, as with every interview, uh, I want I always want to promote a guest's website, a YouTube channel, a blog, or you know whatever or someplace where they can find more material if you if you guys have any of that that you would want to plug uh just uh, do you have anything you want to plug sure i have a personal website it's douglasvandorn.com i just lost my old domain name which all this all those years of of uh, traffic on the on the website so i'm pretty upset about that but douglasvandorn.com, you find it's my website's up and working, I hope. And uh, it has all my books um, there uh, linked to Amazon. And then also I'll, I'll plug our church website. Um, I'm pastor of the Reformed Baptist Church of Northern Colorado, and that's rbcnc.com. And the main reason for your listeners to do that is because uh, we have most every sermon that I've ever done online and um, an awful lot of those. Uh, and they're in PDF form as well as kind of sermon audio. And an awful lot of the passages that we've done in the book on the angel, I will have preached on. And so you can find kind of extra material there 
uh, for free. Just go ahead and download whatever you want. Nice, nice. I'll check some of those out myself. I like to listen to uh, podcasts and, and stuff while I'm uh, doing chores and errands, and uh, I'll listen to some of your sermons while I'm doing my laundry. There you go. Um, Matt, do you have any like website or channel or something you want to uh, tell our audiences to go check out? Not, not specifically related to this topic. I would point people to, to Doug's, you know, he, his, uh, you know, we wrote this book together, but he's written on a lot of other kind of similar issues and has published, you know, numerous books. So, um, his website will have a, a lot more of the information people will be looking for in this, you know, on this way. So, yeah, I did give, I did give you the name of those two other guys. So I, I did kind of like a supplemental series for this, for our angel book. Um, and it's got right now five other books in it. They're kind of all ta tackling it from three different, three different uh, old authors. And then also a couple of different books that I've written uh, to kind of attack it in a different way. So those are all up at the website. All right. So uh, thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Uh, thanks again, uh, Doug and Matt, for coming on the show and uh, talking about this fascinating topic. Uh, before I go, I, I, I want to say that uh, if you would leave a review on iTunes, uh, that would be very great. Uh, it would help people, more people to um, – that iTunes has got like an algorithm where the more positive reviews a uh, podcast has, the more likely it is to show up in someone's recommendation. Uh, and also be sure to check out the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel. I've been doing a lot of live streams over there um, lately, and those have been uh, well-received so far. Uh, I think people like those videos more than the uploads I've been making that are kind of reminiscent of Inspiring Philosophies videos. So, um, yeah, so go check that out. And I want to give a shout out to my patrons, Zach Miller, Slam RN, James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. Uh, and the, again, the book that we've been talking about today is called The Angel of the Lord, A Biblical, Historical, and Theological Study. Uh, the authors, also my guests, called Doug, Douglas Van Dorn and Matt Foreman. And you can check out uh, this book by clicking in the link in the description below. Thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Peace out. God bless. And I'll see you next time. And keep using the brains that God gave you.